the question, who am I? It's an ancient one, isn't it? It's one that humans have been asking since the times of the, the great philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. And in modern times, you know, we see this question pop up time and time again in things like movie narratives when we watch the protagonist's existential crisis and they declare, oh, I just don't know who I am anymore. And their loss of identity, it kind of shakes their resolve. Or when someone or something instills a new found sense of identity in the hero and it enables them to step up to the plate kind of like Peter Parker when he puts on his Spider-Man suit or Neville Longbottom when he is named a courageous Gryffindor by the sorting hat and then eventually he goes on to be the unlikely hero who slays the snake Nagini and ultimately defeats Voldemort. You know, I'm no psychologist, but there seems to be something in this concept that when we know who we are, it shapes how we are that our sense of identity forms how we then live that out. And today, we're going to be focusing on this subject of identity, and we're going to be framing it through the lens of what Peter, the disciple of Jesus, had to say in his letter, 1 Peter. Now, if you've been around for the last few weeks, then you'll know that we're in the middle of a series, just diving a little bit deeper into this particular book of the Bible, and that Peter's main aim in writing this letter is to encourage the churches that he's writing to in the midst of persecution. And one of the ways that Peter does this is by reminding them of their identity. It's like he's saying, when the going gets tough, remember who you are. You know, when we think of identity, we very often, don't we, have a tendency to look inwards. We live in a culture that adheres to the idea of an elective identity. It's something that is self-determined. I get to choose what is true of me. But while our culture might suggest that we're on some kind of search for our identity, Peter, he seems to believe that identity, uh, the identity of his readers, is not something to be found or even questioned, but that is really clear. You know, Peter, he repeats this encouragement again and again and again. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember you are children of God. Remember, you are holy. Remember, you are sheep in the care of a good shepherd. It's like he's trying to instill this sense of resilience in them, that by understanding who they are, it will affect how they are, and it will help them to live in that confidence, despite what it is that they're facing. And so we could look at a whole host of different passages in Peter's letter as we explore this theme. But there is one particular passage that I want to zoom in on, and it's in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 10. If you have a Bible, feel free to flick to it, but it will come up on the screen and we'll read it together. It says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So let's unpack this 
a little bit, because what Peter is saying here is far richer in meaning than perhaps what first meets the eye. You know, Peter, he is developing this theme of identity, the new identity of God's people, and he's doing it by drawing from Old Testament images that refer to the Israelites, who had always been known as God's people. And so then he's taking these images and he's applying it to these Gentile Christians, these non-Jewish Christians, in order to place them and the suffering that they're experiencing within God's story. And he does this throughout the letter, and maybe if you fancy a little bit of a challenge this week, you could read through the book of 1 Peter and you could hunt out all of the Old Testament references, because I think it is really fascinating. But in this particular section, Peter, he is referencing Exodus 19, in which God says to the Israelites that they are his treasured possession, that they will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Where these Gentiles, they had once not been part of the family of God, they have now been drawn together with the Jewish descendants of Abraham. And as a result, they get to take on this new identity. And so this morning, as we consider what Peter is trying to tell his audience about who they are, we're going to dig into some of these Old Testament images a little bit of a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. And so the first image that Peter uses is that of a chosen people. Now, I don't know how many of you guys are into sports, To be honest, even if you've ever been in a PE lesson, you will know the crushing disappointment of not getting chosen. Now, I used to play netball, I still do, but when I was a teenager, there was one girl on our team, Sophie. (laughs) And she didn't just play for us, she played for the county and for the region. She was really, really good, which was great for our team, However, Sophie was an excellent goal defence. And guess what position was my favourite position? Goal defence. So for years, I was relegated to having to play goalkeeper. Now, I would not wish to offend any goalkeepers in the room. You guys are great. You're very essential to the team. However, look at me. Do I look tall enough to defend against a six-foot-tall goal shooter? Absolutely not. And so for years, I lived with, you know, never being chosen. And maybe you can resonate with that feeling. Although I would like to know, as I say, I do still play netball now, and now I get to play goal defence, which makes me very happy. But to bring us back to our passage, what Peter is saying is that unlike in PE or in a sports team, when you're afraid of being picked last, those who choose Jesus are all chosen. And that sounds like good news, doesn't it? And it is. But for Peter's audience, this kind of statement would have been radical because it was the people of Israel who'd always been known in the Old Testament as God's chosen people. God had made a covenant with Israel. He'd made a promise to them that they would be his people and he would be their God. And so by calling the Gentiles his people too, Was God breaking his promise? Well, what's really important to note is that God chose the family of Abraham. He chose the Israelites, but he didn't choose them because they were anything particularly special. 
In fact, as we read in Deuteronomy, it says that he chose them because he loved them. And if you know the story of the Old Testament, then you will know that sadly, God's people in the end, they despised his love. God may have chosen them, but they ended up choosing other gods. And so as the Old Testament prophet Hosea wrote, the Israelites became no longer God's people. But we know, don't we, that that wasn't the end of the story. God, he wasn't prepared to break his promise. Because of his great love, he came to the earth in order to gather his people back to himself. And so through Jesus, God was making a new covenant, a new promise, one in which he was going to bring about restoration, not just for the Israelites, but for people of all nations. Like Peter says in his letter, whether Jew or Gentile, those who have once been called not God's people, you are now God's people. And that includes you and me. If you believe in Jesus, you are part of God's chosen people. God has chosen you because he loves you. And because we know that how we are is shaped by who we are, when we know that we are chosen and we are loved by him, we get to live this out with confidence. You know, there's, there's kind of like this thing, isn't there, um, where like if you kind of go to a, a child and you kind of say to them things like, you are bad, you are wrong, you are naughty, there seems to be like some kind of principle where they kind of tend to live up to that a little bit by misbehaving. And so I think the same thing applies here. When we hear, you are loved, you are chosen, you are worthy, we can then start to live like that is actually true of us because it is. You know, when we're feeling shaken, when we don't feel good enough, when we feel like everyone is against us, when the going gets tough, we can remember that who we are is loved by God, chosen by him to be his people, part of his family. And so sticking with this identity language, Peter, he then writes that they are a royal priesthood. Now, there were certain things that had defined God's people in the Old Testament, and one of those things was the presence of God. God's presence, it dwelled with the Israelites in the temple and the priests, they were selected to be the ones who would go into the temple and to offer sacrifices and to stand in the presence of God on behalf of everyone else. And I think to help us understand this a little bit, I want us to maybe think about the idea of like a VIP area. Now, I unfortunately have never actually been a VIP Probably the closest, closest experience I've ever had um, is that one time we had an eight-hour layover in an airport, and so we decided to pay, I think it was like 30 euros or something, to get into the first-class lounge. And let me tell you, it was worth every penny. <laughs> there were so many snacks, the coffee was literally on tap, and if you have ever tried to fall asleep in one of those like leather upright chairs in an airport, forget about it. The first class lounge had recliners. It was unbelievable. And it really did make me feel like I was not just an airport passenger. I was a first class passenger. 
until, of course, I got on the plane and I sat in my economy seat. But for those eight hours, I felt like a VIP. Anyway, it's a very rudimentary comparison, really rudimentary comparison. But um, the thing is, what I'm trying to get at is the priests, they had special access. But the Gentiles, well, they didn't have any access at all. In fact, they didn't even have an invite. So again, how come Peter is saying in his letter that they do? Why is he calling them part of this priesthood? Well, ultimately... Again, it's because of Jesus. See, these old laws that had restricted certain people from being able to experience the presence of God, they no longer stood because Jesus had come to fulfill them. Through his death and his resurrection, anyone who chooses to follow him has been washed clean. He has stripped away anything that might have previously held us back from being able to stand in the presence of the holy God. And so, as a result, he has made us all priests in his church. Whether Jew or Gentile, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus gets to have direct access to the presence of God. And Peter, he takes this even further with the analogy that he uses of living stones in 1 Peter 2, 5, which is just a little bit before this section, Peter, he tells the church that as they become the royal priesthood, it's like they are living stones being built into a spiritual house. And what he means by that is that we don't just get to be in the presence of God, but that the presence of God gets to be in us. Because what we read as a spiritual house, it can also be translated as the temple of the spirit. It's like he's saying you are the actual temple. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16, the apostle Paul, he picks up on the same kind of concept by saying that we ourselves are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so not only can these Gentiles now come and enter into God's dwelling place, they get to be God's dwelling place. And as Christians, that means that we carry within us his presence. We get to bring his presence with us into any and every environment that we go into. We get to be his mouthpiece. We get to be his hands and feet in our schools, in our universities, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighbourhoods. That is who we are. The presence of God doesn't stay in this room. We take it out with us because we are carriers of his presence in the world. But this picture that Peter paints... It's not just about individual people or stones. It's about each stone being built together. It's a beautiful picture of the unity that we have in our identity as the church. And so I thought to help us to to grasp this image a little bit, that we would play a little game of Jenga. Now, it really is a little game of Jenga. If anyone knows where the rest of the giant Jenga is, that would really help me out. Um, this is all I could find. Um, but it's enough. And uh, imagine that each of these Jenga blocks is a stone. And these blocks that we've got down here at the bottom, they're like the cornerstone, which is Jesus. Now, just to give like, a little bit of context, a cornerstone, it would be the first stone that would be laid in a building, and so all the other stones get built on top of that cornerstone. 
And so when we stay firmly planted on the cornerstone and we are built up together, then we're able to stand firm. You know, this is pretty stable, isn't it? But if we start to take the blocks out, it starts to get a bit more precarious, doesn't it? Particularly if we take blocks out that are close to this cornerstone, then actually it starts to get a little bit more shaky, doesn't it? it? starts to get a little bit more shaky. And it's not going to be too long before these stones actually, they topple and they fall. Because the thing is, we so often feel tempted, don't we, as Christians, to take ourselves out, to try and live our lives as Christians on our own. And as Rich pointed out last week, if you were here in the morning, we live in a society that that praises independence. And we can sometimes convince ourselves that it is possible to follow Jesus independently without actually really needing his church or without needing other people. Now, I would consider myself to be a pretty independent person. My mum always jokes that I was independent from the womb. Um, she was devastated on my first day of nursery when all of the other kids, they were clinging to their parents and they were crying. And I just sprinted straight in, didn't look back. My poor mum, I do love her. Savage. But the truth is, you know, I do kind of love it when people look at me and they think that I'm strong and that I have it all together And sometimes I can convince myself that that is actually true, that I can handle things on my own and that to lean on other people or to ask for help is a sign of weakness. But the truth is, and this is something that I am still trying to learn, we don't have to be strong on our own. We don't have to sort out all of our stuff in isolation. The reality is we can't. None of us are perfect. None of us can sort out our own stuff. Instead, we have a privilege that so many people in this world do not have in that we are part of a wider body, which is the church, which means that we can draw strength from one another. We can learn from each other. And like these living stones that aren't static, but they're alive, they're living, they're they're growing. Through the power of God's presence, we get to grow together. And maybe you're like me, and being independent has become part of your identity. Maybe you've been hurt, and the idea of depending on other people feels a bit too vulnerable. You know, maybe you are pretty content and comfortable with how things are. And the idea of being part of a codependent community, it just feels like a little bit more effort than it's worth. But the thing is, when the going gets tough, if one of these stones tries to stand alone, it's not going to be long before it takes a hit that means that it's not going to be able to stand at all. But when we come together and we strengthen one another, as we stay rooted to this cornerstone, Jesus, we are built up in unity. And when the going gets tough, we get to stand firm. And so finally, the last image is that of a holy nation. And John Wright is going to be talking a bit more about holiness next week. But it is worth taking a moment to think about what Peter means by a holy nation. 
Peter is reminding them, isn't he, of who they already are. Remember who you are. They are a chosen people. They are a royal priesthood. They are a holy nation. And so often we think about holiness, don't we, as like doing the right things. But the truth is that no matter what we do, we can't actually make ourselves holy. Only Jesus can. And the good news is that he does. Through his death on the cross, he has made a way for us to be made holy. You know, remember how I said earlier that Jesus has made us clean so that we get to stand in the presence of the holy God. And so the challenge isn't for us to try and become these holy people, but rather as we keep coming back to how we are stems from who we are. And so if we know that we have been made holy, then God, all he's doing is just calling us and asking us to actually live like it. But again, Peter, he's using corporate language. He's not just talking about a group of holy individuals. He's talking about us being a holy nation. Now, I don't know where your mind goes when you think about the idea of a nation. If you're a rugby fan, you'll know that the Six Nations started this weekend. Come on, England. And uh, a lot of us, we do, we do get a bit patriotic, don't we, when it comes to sports. I am married to a South African, and let me tell you, during the 2023 Rugby World Cup, I have never seen Heinz so proud to be a South African, or, funnily enough, so passionate about rugby. But what Peter is, you know, he's trying to get at here is that what we might think of when we think of a nation, you know, this holy nation, it's not like that. It's not restricted by geographical boundaries or racial or ethnic divisions. In fact, through his church, God is doing away with all of that. And instead, he is installing a new spiritual nation based purely on allegiances to its heavenly king, Jesus. You know, Asia Minor, uh, where all of these churches were that that Peter is writing this letter to, it was actually humongous. It spanned all the way across Italy, Greece, Albania, Macedonia, Bulgaria, Turkey, Egypt, Libya, Israel, and Lebanon. You know, that's a lot of different nationalities. You know, these people that Peter's writing to would have come from completely different backgrounds. But Peter is saying, well, that doesn't matter. In fact, what he's saying is that that is the beauty. As you come together as this multi-ethnic church, as a holy nation, the result is that you will proclaim the, the excellencies and the glories of God. You know, think about it. Where else do you see people from all different backgrounds coming together in unity and in friendship and in love for one another? You know, this is part of who we are, or at least it should be. And there is a reality that in many different ways, the church, it hasn't lived up to exactly what Jesus would have wanted it to be when he told Peter that he was going to build his church on Peter's shoulders. And we see tensions even in the New Testament, in in some of the letters that were written, and different people uh, in different churches have tensions. Because the thing is, the church, it is a whole, but it is still made up of individual people. It is made holy, but broken all the same. And like a mosaic, which takes broken pieces of pottery and it brings them all together to make beautiful art, this 
is what we are as the church. One whole that is far, far more beautiful together than we ever would be just as individuals. And when others who, like Peter says, haven't understood the message, who haven't heard the good news, when they look in and they see us, hopefully what they will see is the excellencies of God's proclaimed, God's holy nation. They will see a people united, not separated by cultural differences or selfish ambition, but secure in who they are, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. And so what does this look like for us? How can we take what Peter has written to these churches in order to help us remember who we are? Well, firstly, we need to spend time with Jesus. You know, Peter, he says that it's as we come to him that we, are, as living stones, are being formed. You know, we need to come to him and spend time with him. And things like spiritual practices are really helpful for that. You know, things like silence and solitude as we give space to reflect on the things that we know are true of us and we wait on the Holy Spirit. He helps to reinforce those things in us and he also goes with us to help us to live it out. You know, secondly, we need to be mindful of what stories we buy into without even really thinking about it. And we need to take those stories and we need to filter them through the biblical story. You know, am I searching for my own identity? Or am I looking to Jesus, the cornerstone, who is a solid foundation? You know, what he says about us, it will never change. And so I'd encourage you, turn to the Bible, read through Peter's letter if you haven't already. You know, find out what does the Bible actually say about who you are? And then memorize some of those things so you can reflect on them next time you need the reminder. And then thirdly, we need to look to those around us. Because if we want to stand firm in who we are, then we need to be rooted in community. We can't just sit in our comfort zone. We need to step into one another's lives and allow ourselves to be changed and strengthened by one another. You know, we need to recognize the beauty and the diversity of what we have, of who we are, as the whole, the church, so that we can learn from one another and truly be able to reflect the glory of God. When the going gets tough, Peter encourages us to remember who we are. And if we can grasp that, then how we are has to, and it will, start to look different. And so if you're able to, why don't we stand